This morning we are jumping into second part of our Lord of the Harvest series. If you missed out on part one, you can just go back to our church website, fcsdachurch.org, and you'll look at the, the media tab there for sermons. We're going into this, and I just realized, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge history buff, but uh, did you know that this last week was 51 years since April of 1970? On April 11, the famed or maybe infamous Apollo 13 mission launched. Do you remember that? Um, it was, I mean, it, it was supposed to be the third mission to land on the moon. Supposed to be. It had to abort that mission. Okay, it had to because, you know, it was actually forced to, to orbit the moon and return to Earth without landing because about 56 hours into the mission, um, there was a loud bang on board. And lights started flashing on the main dashboard there, and they realized that there was a, an inability, a, uh, an inability to generate enough voltage, enough power uh, to provide or generate the oxygen needed and the water needed to keep the three astronauts on Apollo 13 um, afloat. And so that turned in from, or that turned from landing a, a, a spaceship on the moon again to just a survival to get back home. And you watch some of the interviews of, of these guys and just kind of the, the things that were going on. And, you know, recently, I guess, when was that? In the 90s that... Um, that Tom Hanks was, was uh, acting a part in the Apollo 13 movie, and it kind of misquoted that, that, that saying that we now are familiar with, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, actually, technically, it was uh, Houston, we've had a problem. And, um, and here, it, you know, it was just one of those moments. It was a mission with such great hope, a mission with such great potential, and then it's pff, pierced with this note of deafening anxiety. Uh, what's going to happen now? Houston, we have a problem. And when we go to the story of the Lord of the Harvest, take your Bibles with me, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we were here last week. We'll, we'll go here again. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. There's, you know, Jesus, he's, he's telling the disciples, hey, there's a perspective that you don't see. There is a harvest that is truly plentiful. When you're in Matthew chapter 9, go ahead and say amen. amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 37 is where we'll start today. Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but... Houston, we have a problem. But the laborers are few. But the laborers are few. Jesus' optimistic declaration is quickly followed up by an ominous diagnosis. The Lord of the harvest sees not only a great opportunity, but also a great problem. Before we dive into just kind of dissecting what, what, what really is the problem here, I want to just pause for another word of prayer. God, please speak to us. I ask, just like we, we talked about last week, I ask that you would cause us to see what you see and to feel what you feel. Please, as we look to you as the Lord of the harvest, make us laborers in the harvest, we pray. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, amen, amen. So what is so problematic then about this? 
that the laborers are few. Well, without laborers, what happens? Uh, the harvest goes to waste, right? All its potential, all its value, all the anticipated sweetness of that harvest goes to waste. Uh, for those of you who, who like to harvest your produce, who like to harvest your, uh, your fields or your crops or whatever they may be, a harvest doesn't just jump into your basket, right? <laughs> a harvest must be picked. It requires intentional effort. And so you, you lose that. It goes to waste. And all the process, all the work that you've put in, all the, all the, the back aches and the sweat, all, the, you know, all, all of that work, all of that labor that you've done to, to cultivate, all of that goes to waste. It's a tragedy, really, when a harvest is unworked for. At one of my churches back in California, uh, you know, our, our church there, it sat on a plot of seven acres, and, um, you know, it was called Parkwood, not because we had orchards and stuff like that, but, you know, there were actually redwoods just kind of lined, uh, lined the perimeter of the property and stuff, and so about, you know, about 100 yards away from the entrance of the driveway, you know, there was a fenced driveway and a, a nice busy street kind of going past, we actually had a persimmon tree right there on the front lawn. It was huge. It was a good, I don't know, maybe 30 feet tall. It stretched out a good, you know, 30, 25 feet. <clears throat> but, you know, every time, uh, you know, persimmons, uh, every year persimmons would, would start ripening there. And I remember one day kind of coming out of my office and I saw a truck, a semi, you know, not a semi, I'm sorry, a pickup truck parked up actually under the persimmon tree on our front lawn. I didn't recognize, who's, who's out there? You know, our, our custodian's actually in the back right now working on stuff, but who, who's out there? And I saw someone get out of his pickup, climb to the roof of his, his truck. You know what he's doing? He's picking our persimmons. Why? Because we weren't harvesting them. He saw a tragedy. <laughs> he said, oh man, they've got no laborers, I guess. I'll be one of them. <laughs> You know, if we're seeing this, this, the perspective of the Lord that we talked about last week, you know, seeing with the perspective of compassion, seeing with the perspective of hope, the harvest truly is plentiful. Hey, those broken individuals, those souls who are hurt and wounded, those souls who are like, like sheep without a shepherd, they're just not to, we don't turn away from them. No, that's a harvest to be brought in. That's what we were talking about last week. And we, when we start feeling that perspective, then we will feel the weight of this problem. God is working in their lives. He's maturing them to ripeness. There are people all around us who are looking wistfully to heaven, wondering what is the way to eternity. And when Jesus looks at this perspective, you know, hey, there's great hope here. He also sees a problem right here. The laborers are few. And so the question then is, who, what, what laborers is he talking about? Who? Who are the laborers that are missing in action? Who does Jesus have in mind when he says this? I mean, is he talking about, um, you know, the Dwight L. Moody's and the, the Billy Graham's? Is he talking about the Sean Boonstra's, the John Bradshaw's? There's just not enough of them. Is that who he's talking about? No, I, I don't think so. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you're getting creative and you're saying, oh, I remember a parable where Jesus is talking about a harvest. Maybe he's talking about the angels. Maybe you remember this parable in in Matthew chapter 13, where, where Jesus starts to describe uh, this, this, this farmer who has a field and an enemy comes by night and actually plants weeds in the midst of his field. Do you remember this? It's, it's known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. And as Jesus is describing who 
who signifies what? Who represents what in his story as he's telling his disciples? He says this in chapter 13, verse 38 and 39 of Matthew. He says, the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. He says this, the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are who? Are angels. When Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 9 saying, hey, the laborers are few, there's, there's not enough, enough harvesters to go out. Is he talking about angels? Is he referencing the fact that Lucifer's rebellion depleted his heavenly host by a third? Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. I mean, obviously, here in the, math, in the Matthew 13 parable, he has an eschatological end-time perspective in mind, and he's, he's looking at the angels as those who will join him as he comes through the clouds and reaps the harvest at the end of time. But here in Matthew 9, he's talking present tense. He's talking about a harvest that is plentiful currently, right now. And I would submit to you that he's not talking about the specialists He's not talking about the angelic hosts. He's talking about all who would profess to follow him. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. We were talking about this last week, John chapter 4, where Jesus is going through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria, remember? He meets the woman at the well. The woman at the well actually goes out and gets the whole city to come and connect with Jesus. Jesus turns to his disciples and those who probably thought they should have been somewhere else, the disciples who wished that they hadn't had to go through Samaria, they said, hey, you guys think that there's four months until harvest. Like, this isn't the right time. This, this isn't the right place. But don't you know that the harvest is plentiful right now? And in chapter 4, verse 37, he's actually including them in the labor. He says, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps, I sent you, talking to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. He's talking about his disciples. The laborers are few. That is, that when choosing the agents through which his redemptive purpose could be accomplished, when he's looking for, you know, his number one draft pick is not the angels of heaven, it's you and me. His, his fledgling church. Remember it, the, the great commission of Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He says, hey, go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Who is he talking to? He's talking to doubtful, unbelieving followers of Christ like you and me. Jars of clay. Wow. Why would he do this? That all, all those that Jesus calls to be his disciples, he actually calls to be disciple makers. Yeah? All those who accept his gift of salvation are actually best fit to extend that gift of salvation to others. What is, uh, you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9. Go just with me to chapter 10, a few verses down the road. He's actually sending out the 12 and in verse 7 and 8, this is Matthew chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, and as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, and notice this, freely you have received, freely give. 
When Jesus says, hey, you've got something to give, he's talking to those that, who, have, who have freely received of his salvation. I love the picture of Revelation chapter 22. At the very end of the Bible, what we find is this picture of the spirit and the bride co-laboring. I love this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. In other words, if you've heard the invitation, go ahead and give the invitation. Being a disciple of Jesus does not just consist in coming to him, but also going for him. When we're called to be a disciple, it's an invitation and it's a calling to be a disciple maker as well. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. A genuine disciple follows Jesus and leads others to follow Jesus. When Andrew uh, started running after Jesus, you know, John the Baptist, uh, he said, hey, behold the Lamb of God. He's here again. Andrew starts running, and who does he get? He gets Peter. You read this in John chapter 1. Philip, he comes across Jesus, and who does he get? He gets Nathaniel. Some of you are here today because you were invited by someone who was invited, right? You were called by someone who is called. One of the first Bible studies I had down in Castle Rock as we were planting the church down there was a young lady named Sally. She, she had grown up in church and was really just wanting to know the Lord again. She felt this, this reality that, man, all the things that I thought were going to satisfy just didn't. And so we started studying the Bible together. And at the first, after the first lesson, uh, when, when she came back for uh, the second study, who did she have with, with her? She had, <laughs> she had her special friend with her. And after his first study, he, he said to himself, you know what, I, there's someone at work that would really like this. And he took that first Bible study and gave it to Dave. So Sally brought Justin, Justin brought Dave, and Dave and Justin and Sally were all baptized within the first two years of the Castle Rock Church. This is how things go. When you hear the invitation to come, you want to tell someone else, come on over. That's what being a disciple is. You kind of wonder to yourself, why would God do this? Why, why would God work through such feeble instruments, you know, as fragile and frail as we are? Why would God entrust this mission of such great importance, of eternal significance, to faltering humanity instead of the angelic hosts? This may not be the only reason, but I would, I would submit this is the primary reason. That God's mode of operational... I'm sorry, that God's mode of operation is primarily incarnational. Uh, there's too many big words in one sentence. Okay. <laughs> in other words, Jesus, he modeled that this is his primary mode of operation. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, said the only begotten son. Why couldn't God just like send an airplane with a, with a message in the sky behind it saying, hey, I love you. Why did he have to come in the flesh? It's because people respond best to people. And God uses people to reach people. God's mode of operation is incarnation. Of course, you know, angels, yeah, angels will be definitely much more attention getting. We can agree with that, right? Uh, angels would be much more uh, uh, listened to, so to speak, than little old me. But God prefers to use people to reach people. 
People respond to those who have walked in their shoes. I think you understand this. You know, we're, we're talking about some of the grief and sorrow of losing loved ones. And sometimes the only people that can really sit down with you and bring you comfort are those who have gone through the same. It meant a lot after my uncle passed away from COVID. It meant a lot to get a, a, a phone call and have some Zoom time with someone that I hadn't heard from in years. He expressed his condolences and shared with me that, yeah, his uncle had passed away too from COVID just a few months before. I was just at a funeral uh, this last Sunday officiating for a young couple. They've got two kids and they were expecting their third. But at about 31 weeks into pregnancy, she goes in for a regular checkup and finds that baby is dead. How can you comfort someone if you've never experienced that yourself? Well, what do you say? What was beautiful is that, yes, God had given them a steadfast hope, a, a recognition that, you know, when Jesus comes again, there is hope of resurrection and reunion. But what was beautiful is that after a service, there was a couple that I had not met before, an older couple, that were there. I didn't notice them saying much to this younger couple who was grieving. But this older couple shared with me, yeah, we lost a baby 25 years ago too. Here's the point, that people need people who understand them. Yeah, God can send angels, and he does. God can send dreams, and he does. But he also sends you and me. There are people that because of your story and your unique experiences that can, only or that can best respond to the gospel because God will send you. Because God will send you. In your uniqueness, in your unique story and experiences. This isn't only for the sake of the harvest, you know, those souls who are looking wistfully to heaven. No, this is also for our sake as well. It's for the harvester's benefit as well that we go. Why? Because God wants you and I to invest in people. God wants you and I to know what it's like from firsthand experience to love others more than we love ourselves. God wants us to labor for and love the harvest just like he does. And in, in this way, become more like him. So, if we're the laborers then, as Jesus, you know, he has this great perspective of the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few if we are the laborers, maybe, as Derek Morris suggests in his book, The Radical Prayer, maybe the better question is, why then are there so few laboring laborers? <laughs> if we're all laborers, and that, that, that means that there's plenty of them, but why are there so few laboring laborers? That's the new question I guess I want us to consider just for a few moments. And I, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list. Well, it's probably because of this or probably. Here's what I'll share. At least two reasons that I've observed in my own experience and in the experience of others most frequently. Okay. What, what are those reasons? What keeps us? What are those barriers that keeps us from laboring in the harvest? Reason number one, I would say, is distraction. Can anybody resonate with this? distraction. You know, we have a hard time laboring when we're distracted from the mission that we've been entrusted with. I mean, what, 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 tends, to draw, what tends to draw your focus 
from this primary mission of seeking and saving the lost, right? When Jesus was asked, hey, well, what are you doing here? You know, why, why go to Zacchaeus? He says, now, for this purpose I came. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was true to duty as a needle to the pole, right? So what is it for us that tends to draw our focus away, that distracts us from the mission? I would say that too often our lives revolve around urgent things at the sacrifice of focusing on important things. Have you experienced that? Where the urgent overwhelms the important? Or maybe temporal things overwhelms our focus on eternal things. In another parable where Jesus is using agriculture as a metaphor, he talks about four different soils. A farmer sows his seed on four different soils. Do you remember this one? One is on the wayside, and the, the birds come and eat up those seeds. Another is on, the seed falls on rocky soil, and that seed actually springs up right away, but because of no depth, when the sun comes out, it scorches, and it dies. The third soil, you remember the third soil? The third soil was thorny ground. Thorny. In, in other words, it was full of weeds that, that when the seeds actually started growing, the weeds competed for the sunlight. It competed for the nutrients, and it choked out the life. Ah, actually, uh, maybe I'm misspeaking. It choked out fruitfulness because these plants were actually still alive, just not productive. And here, I think, is where Jesus is talking about having spiritual life but not being fruitful because other things are competing and distracting. Do we have this here in Mark chapter 4? Yeah, Mark chapter 4, verse 19, when Jesus is actually describing what these thorns represent. What, what is it that chokes out our fruitfulness? He says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. They might look alive, but they're not productive. Distraction happens when our focus becomes divided. And let's be honest, this happens not just on a personal level, you know, when it, with our personal calendars, but it can happen on a church level as well, right? Where, where we focus on so many urgent things or maybe focus on so many minor things that we forget the major things. It's the natural tendency of life to allow things to become more and more complex to multitask to the nth degree, right? And as a result, we often lose sight of one, the primary and eternal task that we've been given, that is to make disciples who make disciples. All right, that's the task that we've been given. Go ye therefore. I'm commissioning you now because I have all authority under heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples who make disciples. That's the, when we start dividing our attention, we lose sight of that primary task, but we also lose sight of our primary identity. Identity that we've been called the light of the world. We've been called the salt of the earth. We've been called laborers in the harvest. We've been called a disciple who is a disciple maker. And so when we, when we enter into our homes, when we enter into our office, when we enter into our classroom or our neighborhood or even just our doctor's office, what's the task that you have in mind? What's the identity that you're calling yourself by? Do you recognize that even there, we are disciples who are called to make disciples? 
to labor in the harvest. I mean, I was just kind of asking myself this. Man, how, many, how often do I just kind of go into my, my own living room without this awareness that my primary call is to be a laborer in this harvest? How often do I go into my classroom or interact with my neighbors where my, my primary goal is to really be a laborer in the harvest? Friends, we, we've become distracted. Let's just be real with that. We've become distracted, but God is calling us again to say, hey, let me focus on what is of utmost importance. Reason number two that I would want to just suggest here today, other than distraction, is discouragement. Why are there so few laboring laborers? We know we're all called to be laborers, but, well, we've either been distracted or discouraged. And if you're thinking about sources of discouragement, really, discouragement can come from a lot of different places. It can come from a lot of different experiences. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, where you've actually, you've actually gone out and you've made the effort to reach out to somebody, but then it's either been a shut door or a cold shoulder or just a sense of not interested. It's rejection, right? That, that sense of uh, non-response or ineffectiveness, that's what kind of discourages us from even going out again. And the truth is this, that having a negative experience or having a disappointing experience in the past does not mean that all of our efforts will be negative or disappointing. Amen? <laughs> I remember, you know, when I was kind of first getting my courage up to, uh, you know, be a laborer in the harvest. Uh, we had a youth pastor when I was a senior in academy who would really get us out of our comfort zone. Man, that, that was a, a buzz phrase for me. Okay, just, just get out of my comfort zone. And uh, he, he gathered us for an afternoon outreach and kind of huddled us together, and he says this, when you're digging for gold, you're going to find a lot of dirt. But just because you find dirt doesn't mean you should stop digging for gold. Yeah. That was a negative wisdom that has, has really stuck with me. Not to say that I'm expecting rejection, but I should not be surprised by it, right? That when we're digging for gold, there's still, you know, there may be negative experiences, but not every experience is going to be negative. Hey, friends, we are not called to harvest all the fruit. We are called to harvest the ripe fruit. Do you follow me? Sometimes we, we start pulling and tugging, and we realize they're not coming. <laughs> well, maybe God's not done with them yet, right? We're called not to harvest all the fruit, but just the ripe fruit. Maybe discouragement doesn't just come from rejection or non-response. Maybe your sense of discouragement comes from having messed up, like royally messed up. You've tried, but you really blew it. You said the wrong thing, or, you, or you, didn't, you didn't just embarrass yourself. You actually hurt someone along the way. I remember uh, I, was a, I was a pastor's assistant while I was in high school, and we were following up these uh, uh, requests for Bible study and things like that. And um, <clears throat> Man, I, I'm so thankful for, for leadership that, that, <laughs> that gives young people a chance when they have no idea what they're doing. Anyways, um, I remember going to a door, and, you know, following up with an individual who had requested Bible studies, and they were no longer interested, and I, I you know, I really didn't know what to say. Well, can, can we try again, or is there another time that would work? I didn't, I didn't have any wisdom at that moment, but all I said was, can I pray with you? And so when I started praying, you know what I started doing? I started praying, not just with her, I started praying at her. Have you ever done that? 
oh, Lord, please help this woman get her priorities straight. And <laughs> I walked away. I thought, where did that And I messed up. Never heard from that individual again, as you can imagine. But does that mean just because I mess up that I should stop trying? No, that I should stop laboring? The assurance is this, that we can get back up again. We can live and learn. Yeah, God makes his strength perfect in our weakness. Amen. I was, uh, we were watching uh, something that reminded me of the sons of thunder. You remember James and John, Jesus called them sons of thunder. In Luke chapter 9, you find this story, and Luke chapter 9 is kind of this, uh, uh, what do you call it? It's a collection of the disciples' foibles, really. And in Luke chapter 9, there is a Samaritan village that completely denies seeing Jesus, doesn't want to see him because his face is set towards Jerusalem. James and John, they come to Jesus' defense and say, let's pray that fire would come down and consume these people, just like Elijah prayed, right? You can kind of imagine them jumping from side to side. <laughs> Sons of thunder. They were about to royally mess up, to use the power of God for the destruction of humanity. And Jesus says, you are not in the right spirit, friends. You're not in the right spirit. What's amazing to me is that there's kind of an epilogue to that story, not in Luke chapter 9, but in another writing of Luke, Acts, Acts chapter 8, where the gospel is actually going beyond the bounds of Jerusalem, and there are Samaritans who receive the gospel. And you know, there are people who are suspicious, and so they send Peter and John to go out and check this out. And you know what? You just find in Acts chapter 8, around 15, 16, 17, John and Peter, they lay their hands on them, and they pray for the Samaritans. That what? That fire of the Holy Spirit would come down upon them. John was about to mess up royally. But God was able to redeem him, turn him into the beloved. Hello. <laughs> Man, just because we mess up doesn't mean we stop altogether, that we keep from laboring. Well, I don't know what your discouragement is. Is it from rejection? Is it from messing up completely? Or maybe your discouragement it comes from feeling like you're the only one giving in a shot. That you, you feel like you're all alone. This is kind of the Elijah syndrome you remember Elijah after Mount Carmel, you know, the success of Mount Carmel, where, where all of Israel turns to the Lord, at least in mouth and in profession. They say, the Lord, he is God. That's in 1 Kings 18. But then in chapter 19, Elijah is booking it. He's running for his life. He feels like his work is, is not fruitful at all. And when God finds him on Mount Horeb, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? In the still, small voice, Elijah hears this and says, Lord, it's because... I'm all alone. I've done all of this. And I'm the only one. God speaks to him, this dialogue, twice over. And eventually this instruction comes to Elijah in the midst of feeling all alone. The discouragement of feeling like ah, there's nobody else that gets it. There's nobody else that will, will join the ranks. God speaks to him and says, there are yet 7,000 others. You know what else he does? He not just assures them, yeah, there are plenty of others, but he instructs him, now go anoint this king, go anoint that king, and then call Elisha to service as well. 
In other words, if you are feeling all alone, may I encourage you that Elijah knows exactly what you're talking about and that God's instruction or God's assurance is that he has many others. He has many, even Elisha's, who will follow your lead to be both disciples and disciple makers in the process. So keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Or maybe it's, you know, your sense of discouragement, maybe it's not a sense of rejection. Maybe it's not that you've messed up. Maybe it's not feeling alone. Maybe it's actually getting flack from others. Negative attitudes that have tried to shut you down. I remember the story of blind Bartimaeus as he's calling out to Jesus. There are people saying, come on. <laughs> Maybe you felt that your honest endeavors have been hushed. Maybe you felt that the, the, the sting of criticism while you've been giving it your all. And I, I'll tell you, this doesn't just happen from unbelievers, but also from believers. Now, let's not get this mixed up from there's always a place for constructive feedback. But I tell you, that even within the body of Christ, oh, <laughs> even within the body of Christ, hearts can be wounded along the way. So we try to use our gifts, but it's not appreciated. I've seen that in too many youth groups as I've interacted with different young adults who are no longer connected for one reason or another. If discouraging hands were not placed on, on, on such individuals in the prime of their desire, I think we'd have 100 laborers where we now only have one. And that's really sad, but praise the Lord that God can redeem even that. I mean, I think of the story of Saul. In Acts chapter 9, you know, after he is blinded, after he is knocked off his high horse, he's prayed for by Ananias, he receives his sight, and he wants to go back to Jerusalem, and he's, he's, refute, he, he's actually uh, preaching the gospel. And it says in Acts chapter 9 that the disciples feared him. They were about to reject him. But then there was one, his name was Barnabas, and that was actually his nickname, which means son of encouragement. And he brought him in the fold. Saul wasn't too well received when he started out laboring for the Lord post-conversion. But, praise the Lord that when we work and labor, it's not for men. It's for God. Right? What does Colossians chapter 3 tell us? Whatever you do, do it heartily. As to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Remember who our master is. Remember who the Lord of the harvest really is. And I, my hope and prayer is that we, as a body, one of our, our desires, our utmost values would be, yes, to be, to be joyfully involved, that every member would be joyfully involved in service that, that we know is our calling from God that we would encourage one another and, and find places that fit in ministry. Now, I'm, I'm so thankful to be part of a church family who has a vision to impact this community. And friends, it's not going to be because of one or two. It's going to be because of the collective effort of all. The laborers are few, or the laboring laborers are few. But God says, hey, I'm the Lord of the harvest. So whatever the source of our discouragement today, I want us to consider this Discouragement, actually, it can be very, very debilitating, right? 
Discouragement can, can really keep us from being consistent in our effort for God. It can unsettle us from our firm footing. It can keep us from abounding so that when we actually do labor, it's, it's really not from the overflow of what God is doing in us. We're just kind of eking it out because we should. That's what discouragement does to us. But come with me one last text together, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's what Joseph read for us earlier today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're in Matthew, just go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You've got Acts and Romans. Then you're going to 1 Corinthians right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, last verse of the chapter. When you found it, say, I found it. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, awesome assurance from Saul, now called Paul himself. In verse 58, the Bible says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren. By the way, he's just kind of, he's rehearsed the hope of the resurrection. He's rehearsed the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death. And in verse 58, he says, because of this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. If you felt unsteady, if you felt it moved from your calling as a laborer, if you felt that you are not abounding, that you're just kind of eking it out, know this, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So a simple question today. Are you, am I, a laboring laborer? And if not, why not? John 21, the end of that gospel, there's a story of a distracted and discouraged laborer named Peter. He says, hey guys, I'm going fishing. And when they go, I love this. Though he is distracted, though he is discouraged, Jesus went out to find him. Maybe today you're feeling distracted. Maybe today you're feeling discouraged for one reason or another. And I want to tell you, Jesus is looking for you too. Jesus' question is, he's talking with, with Peter specifically around a fire, sharing breakfast together. His question was this, Peter, do you love me? Not, Peter, have you, have you re-upped your, your training certification? <laughs> Peter, do you love me? Not Peter, did you, did you have a you know, perfect track record as you went door to door? Peter, do you love me? Three times over, which tells me that the heart of truly serving the Lord is, it boils down to, do I love Jesus? Do I love him? Do I love him more than these? That's what Jesus said. Peter, do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than these distractions? You love me more than these discouragements. I tell you what, Jesus sure loves us more than these things. And today I just want to give you a, a simple opportunity to publicly confess your love and loyalty to Jesus. You're saying today, yeah, I want to be a laboring laborer. Then yes, let that be an expression of the fact that you love Christ. If you want to tell Jesus, yes, I love you, 
please make me a disciple who makes disciples. Would you just raise your hand to heaven and say, yeah, I love you. Amen and amen. Yeah. And I want to give a very, very specific appeal today. Because I think, you know what, when we gather together around God's word, when we see the character of Christ, uh, we ought to give each other the opportunity to respond. And so today, I want to just give a specific appeal for anyone who, who feels like they want to signify their surrender to Jesus. They want to signify their commitment to Jesus through baptism. Through baptism. Or maybe it's rebaptism. Maybe you've been off track. You've, you, your heart has grown cold for the Lord. You've actually walked away and you want to renew your vows. Or maybe you've never had a chance to signify your surrender to him in baptism. And so I want to extend an appeal to you or to maybe someone, someone who's listening online, watching online. If you would like to be baptized, I want to pray specifically for you today. Right? If you want to signify your surrender to the one who gave all for you, the one who has come to your shore of discouragement and distraction, looking for you. He's looking for you. If he, he's wanting to, get, to give you eternal purpose. He's wanting to give you eternal life today. If that's you, I want to give you a chance to just raise your hand to heaven and say, yeah, I want to be baptized. I want to surrender to him. Is that you today? Is that you today? Amen. Amen, brother. Yeah. If you're online and you're saying, yeah, that's me today, yeah, you can raise your hand where you are, but I, would, I want to encourage you to go to our, our, our website, fcsdachurch.org slash connect. There's an online form there that you can tell us that you want to be baptized. We'll make a date for that. Let's, let's make some preparation. I'm, I want to pray specifically for you. All right. Is there anyone else that just says, yes, I want to signify my... Amen. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, Lord, you've seen the hands that have gone up here today. You've seen the, the hearts that have been pricked uh, of those who are watching online listening to the podcast maybe sometime down the road, Lord, I thank you so much that you are the one who has come to our shore and we are just saying, yes, we want to receive you. Lord, this is the day of salvation for some of us. And Lord, yeah, we don't have the baptistry filled right now, but we, we can do that at your time and at your pace. And so we thank you, Lord, for the decisions that you have laid upon people's hearts today. I pray but just as much as there is rejoicing in heaven, Lord, that there would be rejoicing amongst us here today. Father, I thank you that even from the harvest, you will call laborers to that harvest. And so, Father, we, we just want to say yes. We love you more than these discouragements. Yes, we love you more than these distractions. Be our Savior. Be the Lord of the harvest. Make us your laboring laborers, we pray. In Jesus' saving and precious name, amen.